This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. One of the mistakes that a lot of historians have made in trying to include novels um, in their narrative of American Christianity or American evangelicalism in particular is assume that uh, fiction is um, exactly the same as a tract or a treatise or an argument, right? So the, the, the question I think we have to ask is, how is it in arguments, but how is it different than... Um, a nonfiction arguments. Hmm. I think we we often imagine that, um, that it's it's also a com- really common mistake for people to think that fiction seduces people into thinking certain things or it forces people into thinking certain things. So you'll see journalists do this all the time. They'll say. Left Behind is about this right-wing agenda and 65 million people read Left Behind and therefore 65 million people believe this right-wing agenda. Mm. And it's like, if you've ever read a book and not liked it, <laughs> you know that that's not quite how it works, right? You, you Readers are actually really creative and they're surprisingly free, <laughs> Sometimes they're terrible readers. Sometimes they're inventive readers. And if we want to think about novels as historical objects, if we want to think about how fiction actually functions in the world, then we we need to bring in our understanding of, of creative readings and bad readings and inventive readings and really start thinking of it as um, as more invitational and more framing, it doesn't force us to think about things a certain way, but it invites us to think about things a certain way. And it sets up a kind of question for us to answer while of course we still have the freedom um, as readers to answer in a couple different ways. So in this in this book, reading evangelicals, how Christian fiction shaped a culture and a faith, you survey quite a few very popular works of Christian fiction. I don't even know if Christian is the right adjective there, um, and you and you talk extensively about whether evangelical is the right adjective and how does that adjective work and what does it mean and is it based in beliefs? And you end up concluding, if I'm correct, something along the lines of if we think about it more as a conversation, what kind of conversation is going on amongst a group of people that defines them as a group, Mm -hmm. Um, which means that literature plays a central role rather than beliefs that somebody holds in their mind. Now the actual literature they're interacting with plays a central role in forming and shaping them as a people. Uh, But uh, to take left behind, for example, and I, as I admitted to you before we started recording, I have read none of these pieces of uh, Christian fiction because I became a Christian later in life and none of it appealed to me. And I, you know, it, honestly, a lot of it looked silly to me as far as fiction went. And so I kind of avoided it, but I ran into it with Christians everywhere I went. Um, and I knew a lot of people that I worked with who weren't even 
wouldn't necessarily call them Christians themselves Christians, but they had the Left Behind series sitting on their desk. You know, they'd mm. read them all, and the and the series terrified them. So, what what would something like Left Behind, Frank Peretti's uh, This Present Darkness was another one that I think had a deep influence in the way people conceptualize demons and angels and the forces and powers of good and evil, um, and then conceptualize how they read the Bible, but. Um, I was astonished by how many people read those books but don't actually agree with them. Then what are they doing? (laughs) What role do those books play? Uh, I guess you say the reader needs to be more creative or needs to be viewed as more creative. What what role do they play in the typical evangelical mind, if I can can say such a nonsense phrase? Sure. (laughs) Yeah. So I look at five novels. um, each chapter looks at a, a different novel um, and they each sold over a million copies. I, I sort of had to come up with a criteria, like what am I yeah, going to yeah. include? Um, so each novel sold more than a million copies and um, marks a, um, a change in the history of how the Christian fiction market or the evangelical book market works. So there's, there's each is a kind of transition point in the, uh, market evolution that's happening there. Um, and when you read a lot of these novels, um, which you don't have to do, um, I'm not saying Drew, go out and read these novels and then like, it's okay if you don't read them, but if you do read a lot of them, what you find is that the, the central theme of each of them is belief. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, there's obviously no like law that they have to be about belief, but the central question is again and again, um, what does it mean to believe in the world like this? What does it feel like to experience belief in this kind of, um, reality that we, that we fall into? And, and they answered in a bunch of different ways. So, so one of the, questions that occurred to me as I was making my way through these books is sort of, um, if they'd all answered it the same way, belief means this. <laughs> um, when you believe it will mean this for your relationship to your neighbors, or this is how it will feel to accept Jesus into your heart. If they sort of all had the same answer, that would have been a really coherent picture of the community that's around these books or the mm. audience for these books, which we can call evangelicals um, tentatively. But it gets really um, complicated and fun when they actually answer it a bunch of different ways. Mm. So to, 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 to talk about a couple of examples, um, Love Comes Softly which is this um, romance novel that comes out in 1979 that really convinces um, evangelical publishers that there's a future in Christian fiction. In Love Comes Softly, um, belief feels like the assurance of abundance of abundant life. Mm. It's, it's, it's similar to a romance and then it's like, God wants the best for you. <laughs> and even if you don't understand necessarily, um, if you can't quite communicate, um, you can trust and you can rest in this uh, assurance. Left Behind, on the other hand, um, says that um, that belief is going to be like a kind of a bit of a cultural conflict and specifically right. a kind of worldview conflict where you know the truth and 
you're kind of compelled to the truth, but other people like refuse to believe it. And so you have to live in the world where other people are wrong and obviously wrong. And how do you, how do you like reckon with that? Those answers aren't incompatible, but they are different. And so part of, part of the work of the book is trying to, to ask them, how do we think about evangelicalism in a way that shows us how both of these things were option Mm. were options within a, within a single conversation, how both of these were um, like available that people could choose one or the other or both or a combination or alternate between the two at different times in their lives. Um, within the, the um, broader community of American evangelicals. Yeah. I, I found that very helpful. Um, the, the discussion of moving towards kind of choose your own adventurism and belief, mm-hmm. um, which creates uh, all kinds of problems uh, in thinking about why Christ died. <laughs> The nature, the nature of the good news, the empire of God, all that kind of uh, thing. But uh, it also explained things to me. A, a movie I had seen, I don't know if it's based on a book, God's Not Dead, hmm. um, which again kind of portrays this. Uh, you have to choose. There, there's now you have an adversary in the room. Uh, it seems actually that one seems to capture several of these themes that float up in, and at least um, the Pretty book and yeah. left behind. And. So the the natural question here, here's the question academics will uh, all ask is, well, do these merely reflect the theology of the times or are they creating the theology of the times? And I asked that, I remember a Terry Gross interview with Timothy LaHaye hmm. long time ago. I don't remember when it was, but it was the first time I'd ever heard him talk about the book. And he actually said on NPR that those books were actually, he believes they were prophecy from God through him. Um, and that, hmm. like, I remember stopping in my car and just thinking like, wait, what? Um, so to me that he is both reflecting, but he clearly thinks that he's actually advocating the particular theology that people should believe. So, um, do you see these as all, all also differently and on different scales, uh, advocating versus reflecting or some more strongly than others? The stronger argument that I make is that the, um, the book market and the way books are sold shapes Mm. evangelical culture. So um, the shapes in the subtitle refers more to the market for books and how books are sold and and the way that the um, market organizes people in the world. Um, Then it does this idea this really common idea, but I think really naive idea that people just like read left behind and then like fall into a left behind vision of the world. Um, But I don't, I don't think that the reflective, um, uh, I I don't think that's the best way to think about the novels. I do think the best way to think about the novels is that they are, um, of course, taking an existing theological idea, like not going from scratch, they're taking a, a, a vision, a Christian vision that um, of, of life in our world today that exists. Um, but they're making it widely available to people. They're, they're putting it out there as a, um, 
here's a thing that you could identify with. Here's mm. a thing you could um, buy into or buy um, both literally and as a, as an idea. Um, so they do, they do shape the culture um, by planting flags a little bit. Um, and some people read the books and don't like them. And that turns out to also be important. So with left behind, for example, um, you know, it's a, it's a hugely important book to the emergent movement in the early two thousands, emergent Christians at this time always talk about left behind. They have to talk about left behind. It is a totem it's a totem of what they don't like, right? It represents the consumer oriented right wing Christianity. That's all about um, uh, stodgy ideas or, or a mm. uh, rejection of ambiguity. And so the, you know, the book in the world um, invites people to explore this kind of belief and to try it on imaginatively, you know, as they suspend disbelief to read the novel. Um, it then also allows them to connect with other readers, you know, reading as such mm. a communal experience. You do it alone, but you are always in community with and in conversation with um, imagined people and real people. Right. And then it exists in the world in a way that you can sort of place yourself in relationship towards. I'm exactly the person this book speaks to, or I'm, you know, 50% uh, the person, or I like this part and I don't like this part. But it makes that widely available in the world because it's a really popular book and because it's widely sold. Well, and I think fictional narratives or novels can do something that nonfiction can't do because in, in this one particular way in which uh, if I write, you know, if I've written a book where I'm advocating some belief about things, you, people can read it and go like, well, I think he's wrong, right? I just think that that's wrong. But there's something about the story that allows you, again, it creates a world in which you can entertain truths within that world uh, that might not, that you don't know whether they're true or not, in, you know, in the real world. Uh I think there's this guy named uh, Yehoshua that lived out of Nazareth who used to do this as well. He'd like tell little fictional stories and, and create a world in which you're supposed to imagine how things. Now those are micro narratives, but it does make me wonder in the in the grander scheme. I teach introduction to Hebrew Bible Old Testament to freshmen from around the country every semester, and one of the things that's become clear is that eighteen uh, year olds are. I, I don't even know if the word literate even counts anymore when it comes to the Bible. Even if they read it every day, they might not know what it says or how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, and recently, some of my literature professors have said, oh, well, it's because they don't read any literature, right? They, they, they're not literate in any kind of literature. Therefore, they don't read scripture. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you think there's a deleterious or helpful impact of this kind of Christian literature in, in reading and understanding um, the sacred text, the scriptures as well. I don't, I don't always love the framing questions of these, of these novels that I talk about in, in, in reading evangelicals and in mass fiction. And, you know, I also like literature and, uh, you know, and more personally find Flannery O'Connor more Mm -hmm. compelling than Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye. But, um, but I do think that, um, that, 
the way novels work on the imagination is 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 powerful and compelling and is important for um, accessing all all types of literature and 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 scripture as literature. And it's just that starting place is so different, right? Like if you stand up and start making an argument and you, you know, show up in the park and get on a soapbox and you're like, let me tell you about why God exists and why Jesus's death is important for you right now. My, you know, as a listener, my primary question is, um, you know, do I agree with this? Mm -hmm. Is is he right or is he wrong? And, And why with a novel, the, the first question is about the suspension of belief, the suspension of disbelief. So the question is, could I imagine what it is like to occupy the mental space of this character? Could I, um, yeah. Could I pretend for a moment? And, you know, and the, the assumption is that you're free to stop pretending at any time. So it's mm. a it's a very like, let's just try it. Let's just yeah, try yeah. it. Let's just go along with it and then and then see what happens. And I think that actually has a like really powerful effect of um, pulling you into questions and pulling you into reframing and pulling you into um, uh, ideas that that um you would resist otherwise. Yeah. And you know, that's especially helpful when we're trying to think um, outside of the frame of our own secularity, outside of the secular age to use Charles Taylor's um, framework. Can um, you, can you explain really quickly what you mean by secularity and the, the secular age? I think I know, but for our listeners who might not have heard that phrase that way. Yeah. They think there's a sacred and secular world and they don't mix at all. Yeah, let me think how the best <laughs> recap um, of Charles Taylor. I mean, I think I mean in this place, uh, in this space, that um, we live with enough multiple perspectives that we're always um, kind of condemned to doubt. And even mm. if I believe in the existence of God, and I believe in, you know, let's take something else that um, is maybe more clear, like angels and demons, and I believe that angels and demons are real as ontological objects in the world and they have effects and um, they exist just like cats and dogs do differently, but the same. Um, If if I believe that I I also am always aware of other people not believing that. And Mm. so there's some doubt kind of just baked into the experience of, of belief um, because of pluralism, because of, um, the speed of technology because of just the variety of people. So, so there's always, um, there's always some suspicion, even, even believing people Charles Taylor said are, are secular in this sense. It's not a secular age in that like people don't believe anymore. It's a right. secular age, age in the sense that um, belief is more tenuous and fragile and we question it our, ourselves. Um, so if you get a book like Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness and it opens up and there's a conspiracy in this small town and the conspiracy is a new age conspiracy and behind that it's a demonic conspiracy right. and there are all these there are all these creatures infiltrating the town and no one can see them and they're 
you know, creepy and crawly and carbuncled and their shadows torn in the space of the fabric of time. And if, if you ask me to believe that I'm going to struggle, I'm going to, I'm at least going to start from a position of pretty severe doubt that that's like a decent description of the world of an American small town. But if you ask me to just put aside my doubt for a minute, because the story might be interesting and there might be something worthwhile and it just has to be entertaining and I can believe it just for the moment. I can put it down later that, um, you know, that that's much more, much more inviting. And, and when I leave that experience, I might not, I might still not believe in angels and demons and I might still not believe in angels and demons like that but it might also be formed by the experience of pretending <laughs> to believe right. or enjoying the thought of the possibility um, for a while. And when I, when I, when I studied um, how readers respond in each chapter, I also look at like how readers read these books. And I always tried to find, you know, someone or a group of people who loved it and said, what did they love about it? Right. And then a group that hated it and what did they hate about it? And you find you find this all the way through, right? They're aware that it's a fictive world and that it's imaginative and they're kind of playing with it and letting it form them in that act of play. It it is fictive, but uh, I think of the fan art that spun out of Left Behind. Uh, you know, like the, the airplanes falling out of the sky was the, the big icon that uh, you also homed in on uh, mm-hmm. in this book. And that it does... You know, I think Lewis, someone once told me he calls this a supposal, you know, like supposes the using fiction as a supposal, supposes mm-hmm. the case. It seems to me, though, that maybe with some really good uh, revivalist tent preaching, you would get some of this supposing. But uh, what Left Behind, for instance, did is it gave you actually graphic narrative fictive analysis uh, to put in your head that so from now on, and I, I used to work with children in Christian education you know, you stick that image in their head for the rest of their life. The rapture mm-hmm. is that thing. And I feel like even for adults, it kind of stuck in that way. Uh, that it was kind of a void, even though I would say the rapture is reading those passages completely backwards in the gospels. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gave people a, a vivid imagination by which they're now reading those texts. And they can't even see that the texts are actually, I think, saying the exact opposite of what they think is going to happen. Um, yeah. And I'm less, con- I'm less convinced that that's, the effect on everybody. Right. So I think that like the caution that I want to make in the, and a a caution in the book is like, it does have these effects, but that's, um, that's not a complete understanding of what the, what the book does in the world. For some people, it convinces them that this is the, this is the right story and Mm -hmm. this is how it's going to feel and how it's going to look. Um, I think for more people, it's, um, it's, um, it's a space in which they learn something about themselves and they Mm. come to certain ideas of God. Um, And so you think, you know, well, where would I be if this happened? What kind of person am I? Am I like this character? Am I like that character? So if the rapture did happen, like, how's my response? What, Mm -hmm. what, what, what's my faith in Jesus? What's my, um, skills and backgrounds and family commitments gonna, gonna put me in the position to do. It does shape readings of texts. And I think, um, that 
can be a work for <laughs> professors and Bible professors and it's scholars. It's a lot of work. And I do think, you know, part of the criticism of, criticism of these books is that they have an authority mm-hmm. and they have often supplanted pastoral authority right, and church right. authority and academic authority. Um, and And that can be, yeah, that can be quite upsetting. I mean, and we and we can't blame these books. I mean, most of the uh, the spade work I have to do as a professor, or even when I was a pastor, I had to do was really fighting against you know Dante and Milton, where they were getting most of their ideas about the afterlife. You know, and I hear much say, less professors being like, "That damn Milton messed everything up." But yeah, you're right. Like this should. is the same. Yeah, that's more literary. It's more highbrow, but it's yeah. also about. Um, experimenting and i do wonder when we combat these um like how often um how often we're um choosing to fight the imagination with didactic lessons oh yeah (laughs) um like this part partly the problem might be um you know trying to undo the powerful imaginative work of a novel with like a lecture, which everybody just loves. You're hitting a little close to home right now. Always the way to go. (laughs) Well, it's interesting. That's, that's partly how left behind stars. Tim LaHaye. Oh yeah. Yeah. Tim LaHaye has a nonfiction version of the book that no one has read. I mean, it's just like it, it just essentially vanished. And it was the, the very bad response to that book that made him think, uh, well at the same, at the same time, he, um, I think there was something with Ben Hur where he like, there was some revival of Ben Hur and he was mm. like, Ben Hur is a silly story, but it has moved so many people. And my really, really good <laughs> uh, reading of the end times theology as I do just got no one. So like, yeah. how do I, how do I do that? Um, and then he, and then he went and recruited Jerry Jenkins to, hmm. to do the other part of that. So LaHaye, it's interesting. You said LaHaye said, Oh no, this is all prophecy. This is exactly it. like he had very little to do with the writing. It's just the prophetic outline is yeah. his part of the work. And the rest of it is all the characters and all the, um, in between parts of the narrative and all the dialogue is Jerry Jenkins really doing intense, imaginative um, yeah. narrative work. I mean, I, I think what you say about trying to lecture out the imagination uh, is is exactly right. Uh, I've now taken to saying I'm not I'm not fighting their ideas and beliefs. I'm fighting 18 years of traditioning, uh, <laughs> which is an uphill battle in every direction. And so it it does. I mean, it, as somebody who works on biblical literature, ancient Near Eastern literature, and biblical literature, uh, it strikes me that the biblical authors had all of these tools at their disposal so when it you know when they go to the past they actually give some pretty rich and sober and damning description of themselves and others and uh, they don't pull punches there are no victory stellas in the bible it's all yeah we're losers yep we're losers but god right and then when they turn to the future they paint it all in hues and brush strokes of uh analogy metaphor metalepsis it's very it's actually very difficult to construct any particular vision, anybody who's worked in Revelation knows that you get all kinds of overlapping visions. So when it comes to sexuality and the eschaton, it seems to always be shrouded in 
overflowing and overrunning uh, poetry and, and images, which makes me wonder if um, if the biblical authors themselves were aware of the danger of painting the narrative itself of the eschaton because a they couldn't do it justice and b it might the wrong image might stick and get get caught and taught. Um, does that make sense? I know I'm. I like to do a huge wind up and then a curveball. So. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it sounds like you're asking me to praise the subtlety of John of Patmos for, <laughs> for <laughs> the dragon with seven heads and the <laughs> woman who rides the beast in the six, six, six. And I, you know, I, yeah. I, I guess I'm not, um, compelled by how restrained that is lest, <laughs> lest the images of the whore of Babylon stick in people's heads. Yeah. Um, but I do think, I do think like we as Christians in the 21st century, and especially if you're someone who's in a a teaching position or has been given any kind of didactic space, you know, and I'm, um, a journalist and a historian and I, I also teach a humanities class, um, as a, as an adjunct, I do a little teaching on the side. So I'm definitely in this space, right. Mm -hmm. Um, we have often been this kind of elite um, within Christian space has been often traditioned and encultured into the idea that argumentation is the most powerful thing and oh, yeah. propositional claims are the core of our belief um, and um, lectures and didactic stuff um, is, is really the best way to propagate that. I think that's crazy. Yeah. I think there's no evidence for that. Amen. There's no like. <laughs> there's that's actually not, a lot of evidence to the opposite in the even just like sense. a remedial yeah. like looking around the world. Right. Like that's not. <laughs> I mean, people love podcasts, but I there are very few podcasts that are like straight lectures. Right. It's conversations or it's storytelling. Those are your options, and yet we then invite people into to learn, and we're like, well, this isn't going to be a conversation. And I'm not telling you a story, but here are seven points I want you to remember. Um, and I and I find this resonant pretty deeply with my faith. I mean, I think if you're grounded in scripture, you know, there's very little uh, systematic theology in the scripture. I would I might um, argue that there's none. Maybe. Yeah, maybe yeah, there's yeah. none. Yeah. Um, the fact that we have four gospels, right. I was talking to this to someone the other day, like there's so many, um, there's so many efforts over the years to synthesize the four gospels and kind of fix it. And it's like, well, what if we take not just the the text as inspired and authoritative, but the fact that there are four of them right? and that they tell the stories in different ways and with different emphases and different themes. And what if, what if we just assume that that's important, that that's how we got it. Um, and that that's rather that, than some kind of mistake that it's actually like kind of there's a there's a there's a, a really critical claim to Christian life in that four gospel structure. Um, and that's I I have to point out because I teach hermeneutics every semester, uh, not in original languages in English. And, uh, you know, when we get to this issue of objective, absolute truth and we have to say, like, look, we come from a four gospel tradition where people spoke where the gospel writers spoke and wrote in different languages, uh, came from different parts of different uh, nations, as we might call them. 
Um, so it's a multi-ethnic, multi-linguistic project that all that we believe put together enriches our true understanding, right? So um, I think this is the power of literature. And I would also say, just to add to your point, this kind of propositional argumentation, which I do think has a role in, in teaching, but um, that scripture teaches most loudly when it's teaching through narrative. And um, this is this is one of my hobby horses, my professional hobby horses. So. And at least Loud some of the amen. objection, yeah, and at least some of the objection to mass literature and mass Christian literature seems to be, there are other objections, I don't want to say it's all this, but some of the objection is it seems to be um, people being snooty about stories, mm. and and this isn't quite right, and this isn't um, didactically how I would have done it. And some of it seems to be about a challenge to authority. I mean, I think the... That one reason that this um, this novelistic tradition ends up thriving so much in evangelicalism, as opposed to some some other religions, is the the space within the evangelical tradition to find alternative sources of authority mm-hmm. to, to to prize individual experience and um, and democratize access to, to the truth. Um, you know, if you needed a, a bishop to sign off on every novel, you don't have right, right, a very, yeah. a very robust, uh, uh, narrative fiction tradition. Um, but this frustrates a lot of people. I mean, even just the fact that many of the readers are women and that many of the women who read these novels then have theological ideas that aren't the ones taught in seminary. Like that's mm. part, that's part of what's going on mm. when people um, loathe this popular yeah. fiction, which they do. I don't think that's an underestimate under the, when you study it for years and years, you get a lot of people who are like, well, this stuff is all terrible. I hate it. If your book is not just about how it's terrible, right. uh, then what are you even doing? You know, but but my initial impulse is to kind of, as a cultural historian, is to look at stuff that other people see as ephemera or detritus and just sort of worthless stuff and take it seriously and yeah. think, no, what is it actually doing in the world? And, and let's assume that the readers are as smart as I am and as good-hearted as I am and, and then think, what could they be doing and investigate that question? If you were to replace books on people's shelves if they had these books on their shelves and you were to say like okay as a christian i think you should read some other novels what what books would you throw up on their shelf hmm i really i'm really um as a discipline really committed to describing the world rather than proscribing <laughs> I, I norms. perfectly understand. Yeah. So I you find give me one book bit, that you would say, I think everybody should read this novel as a Christian. As I a have Christian. one. I, I'll go first. What's yours? Yeah. East of Eden. I just think yeah. it's one of the most accurate descriptions of humanity uh, at one point, at one time slice. Yeah. Interesting. Is it the accuracy that you find so compelling? Um, and the, and just the darkness of it. <laughs> just when it gets, when Steinbeck gets down inside people's psyches, I'm like, yeah. oh, I, I recognize those people. 
I, uh, I recognize parts of them in me. I know, I always tell my students, I don't know if you should read it when you're 20. Maybe you should wait till 30 because then you'll know people like this. Mm-hmm. And it might seem too fantastical if you're too young. Um, so the realism of it, I guess, the gritty realism. Yeah, and it obviously has some some deep um, biblical themes right. in there too. Oh I yeah, mean, it's that to me is a, a sideshow to prescribe uh, as a Christian because yeah. it is also in some ways like a, a, a really Christian novel. Um, I want to dodge the question a little bit. I'll see if you'll if you'll okay. let me. <laughs> part of I have I have books that I absolutely love, but but part of what the project of reading popular novels has made me think is that we should, um, we should read more Hmm. and different stuff. Like I want to encourage omnivorous reading. Yeah. And I would say even read trashy books and books that were like super popular in the fifties and no one knows about anymore Hmm. at all. Um, and read, um, literature that's a little bit weird and old books and kids books and um i think the i think multiplicity is more important to me than having the one good book yeah and i i think there's something in the there's an older tradition of devotional reading and especially when you get sort of a, uh, like in the middle ages where books, books are much less popular. There's this idea of finding like one book and reading it devotedly over and over. Mm. And then when people start reading more quickly, um, that is considered not religious reading or not mm. spiritual reading. There's something about the like churn of stuff and the quick yeah. reading of stuff. And then we still carry this older form of reading as like, well, that's what it means to read something spiritually slowly meditatively you know pouring over each word um but so many forms of protestantism have actually thrived in um that speeding up of reading and that multiplication you know whether it's tracks or uh newspapers you know there's so many um frontier evangelical communities that are really bound together by newspapers, which really are Mm. ephemeral um, and, and participating in a, in a conversation. Um, So not just in the spirit of people should buy lots more books and that would be great, but also um, it's a big world. There's a lot of perspectives. I love reading the Odyssey and I think everyone should read, you know, Homer, but also, um, you know, the the latest horror novel, if you pick it up at Barnes and Noble, is going to tell you a lot about the world that you live in, and it's going to invite you to think thoughts that I think are worth engaging with. Um, as a Christian, as someone questioning how to live out your faith. Well, Daniel Silliman, thank you very much for your wisdom. Thanks. Appreciate it. It's good to be here. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.